Hey, I'm Franco Fubini, and welcome to Natura's podcast, Transform the Food System. Every other week, I'll be talking to a different guest about how we can use our collective power to build a better food system. As Natura's founder, I'll be calling on our community of chefs and growers, as well as anthropologists, authors, scientists, and sustainability experts to talk about how our everyday food choices can bring about radical change. This week, I'm joined by the brilliant Nicole Masters, author for The Love of Soil and director of Integrity Soils, the regenerative agriculture experts committed to educating farmers to look to the soil as a way of healing farmland and our planet. I first learned of her from seeing her book at the Farms Read Visit in the UK. It is used like a soil Bible by many looking at improving their farms without relying on artificial inputs. Her story is deeply personal, the impact of herbicides having affected her health at an early age, but her work is fundamentally important to everyone. From the food we farm, to our own physical health, to the climate, and ultimately the future of the planet we live on, soil affects us all. So, hey, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me, Franco. So I was really interested uh, to hear the, you know, kind of the journey that you've taken and particularly, you know, the personal experience you had as a, as a child, which you talk about in, at the beginning of your book, um, because I think, I think it's very important. It's one of the messages that you send uh, is linking the work on, on soil and farming and ecology with our own personal health and, and well-being. Um, so I think it's just a really interesting to get just a little, a little understanding from you as to how that how that journey went and and that experience formed. I guess the work that you do as uh, throughout your life now. I just think there's no separation between what is happening with human beings and what's happening on the planet. Like it's all interlinked. I, you know, see so much. You know, we've got climactic turmoil and and soils falling apart and the soil gut microbiome not functioning. And then you see the same thing with people and. Um, so many of us are carrying a chemical loading and probably from the book, I find most people that contacting me are asking about how to chemically detox. So um, farmers that were around sheep dip or people that were spraying a lot of herbicides and fungicides who are seeing issues with their children. You know, it, it really does connect people on a deeper level in terms of what have we been doing in this great big chemical experiment for the last 120 years? And what are those consequences? Because it's so insidious, you know, the whole autoimmune stuff. It's harder to, to really delve, like identify as opposed to like a chronic poisoning. So for me, I was, um, I was poisoned with Paraquat when I was 15 and I was hospitalized, but it actually took 15 years before we discovered what it was. So what interests me is that my body intuitively knew we need to get chemicals out of the food system um, without me kind of like explicitly going, oh yeah, you know, we need to get chemicals out because I've been poisoned because I, I didn't know. So, you know, I'd spent the next 20 years, I guess, really looking at how do we get chemicals out without realizing I had chemicals in my own body. And I think it's a fairly common story when you start talking with people, everyone's got something, you know, either an autoimmune or some kind of gut function problems and can relate to that. Very beautiful parallel between um, working on on improving the digestive system of soils and in turn producing beautiful food that's nutritious that works on our own gut biome. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that was the intended uh, connection that you were building by using that terminology, but I think it's uh, it's super important. It is. And I think people can relate better to their own bodies sometimes than they can relate to soil. And so I think um, if you can understand your own body 
function. There's so much of that that relates to soil from, you know, the digestion or the nutrition or antagonism of minerals or interaction. So really thinking of the soil as that gut system and thinking of plants as having their stomach outside their bodies in order to digest nutrients, I think it helps um, it helps us relate to soil, you know, I find for some people soil and soil microbiology occurs like it's unicorns and fairy dust and it's, it's hard to kind of go, oh, it's, it's alive, you know, you just looks like dirt, you know, and, and so ha having those stories to help us um, feel more, I, I guess, emotionally connected to something. Yeah. When, when did soil become really important to you and in, in, in the way that it is now, I mean, in that kind of real, real understanding of, of the connection between our, our health, the planet's health and, and actual soil biology. If you ask my family, um, they will say it's always been there. You know, they have stories of finding me in the garden, like picking snails out of their shells and eating them, you know, like <laughs> having that, like just really comfort with being, um, in the garden and in the soil and, um, you know, when Mount St. Helens erupted, I was five and it had a, it did have a really big impact on me, which I now go, God, you must've been a really weird five-year-old, but like, um, I was subscribed to National Geographic and just kind of being like, whoa, there's all this power of nature. And then watching that recovery through National Geographic of how quickly those landscapes restored themselves and being really inspired by that. And I think I was in a car once with my Nana and we were playing I Spy, you know, I Spy with my little eye. And I said something beginning with E and she couldn't guess what it was. And finally I'm like, it's erosion, Nana. You know, like, so I think for, for me, those soil processes have always been like really front and center. And I grew up um, in a military lifestyle. My father was a pilot, spent a lot of time in aircraft. I was very privileged to be able to fly with him you know, he'd just come and get me and we'd go and do stuff. It was pretty neat. And being really shocked by the amount of erosion that was in New Zealand, like um, especially in the 80s, the huge amounts of soil erosion. Um, yeah. And, and when I went to do my degree, so I did an ecology degree and then, you know, discovered cell biology and then plant physiology. And I was like, wow, everything's about plants. This is so cool. And, you know, doing zoology. Um, and then it wasn't until I came to the soil sciences that I was like, whoa, everything's about soil. So I, I, I talked to some of my friends who did that journey like in 20 or 30 years and I did it in three, you know, like, yeah, 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 soil, right? we we got to get excited about soil. And I think it is the new frontier. We're discovering so much about it all the time that it's 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 never boring and I've never got tired of the topic. I might be interested in different aspects of it, but it's just never got boring. So yeah. And some people are like soil, like, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, whoa, no man, soil. It's like everything. So, yeah. <laughs> so much is happening down there. Um, I've, I've, uh, I've gone through an interesting, interesting journey in terms of, yeah, better understanding the importance of, of soil and in, in what we do. Cause when, you know, when I started Natura, it was all about flavor. It was a, it was, it was a very basic in a way and a very selfish need the first real magical realization was this concept of you know nutrition and flavor and how there's a obviously very intelligent link there for us as for us as consumers and humans right the body telling us this tastes good because actually it's good for you um so for me it's been it's taken a long time to 
as, as I've educated myself through the work that we do to realize <clears throat> how central soil is to the work that we're trying to do. And, and obviously, the, you know, as, as we said, the, the health of ourselves and, and, the, and the planet. Um, and it's just been fascinating to see kind of soil and, and regenerative farming. Yeah, totally. And I think through the industrial revolution, we've been ignoring the biological component and it's like, but the biology are what make those flavonoids and increase the carotenoids and provide those enzymes and provide plant growth hormones and, and all of these things that add to what is it that makes something taste amazing. You know, you meet these, you know, older generation who are like, oh, when I was a child, you know, this tasted amazing. And you're like, yeah, it's because your taste buds are dead, Nana. But um, actually it's not. It's that <laughs> we've undermined that whole interface of biology that are the ones that are in passing all of these different um, flavors, smells. And it's all the things that plants use to defend themselves against insects and diseases. That's what gives us those flavors. Um, and yet we're out there putting nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium on and fungicides. And it's like, so we want food that has like the flavor profile of glyphosate or fungicides. And, and that's where we've gone, you know, and it's like the wine growers of all people who understand terroir, here they are out lacing things with herbicides. And it's like that flavor profile is so important. Um, yeah. And, and that, that is, I think, what's capturing a lot of people is is some of these flavors that we're starting to see come back. Yeah, with, <clears throat> without a doubt, we we've always we always talk about flavor as as the one. The you know, if if the consumer if the consumer is going to remember one thing, and if they're not interested in in soil or provenance or who's farmed it and how it's being farmed, I always say at least if they walk away with this kind of this be the, the, you know, the real joy of eating a, a peach that tastes incredible and that can blow your mind. That's enough for me to get the consumer hopefully convinced that they should be buying better, right? And through that, stimulating that kind of demand. So we, we believe very strongly in generating the, the right kind of demand and doing that through flavor. And then, of course, if people are interested in the, in the, broader, the broader story and conversation around it, then great. Um, but a lot of times people don't have the time or headspace um, so, and it's, it's a lot of work. Cause I, I remember first coming here to the U S and I couldn't tell the difference between pork, chicken, beef, because it all tastes like corn. And you've got this, you've got this audience that's trained to taste like that. So when they taste these beautiful nutrient dense grass fed, um, meats, let's say they find it really gamey. Like their, their, their palate has been trained for blandness and sweetness and, and that's it. Um, you know, we have an iceberg lettuce and a, white hamburger bun and, and you know hamburger meat from a feedlot and yeah and it's like okay we we've got a bit of work to do here to 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 re-enliven that palate i see two challenges one is the one that you described right how do we enliven the palate which is the thing that we face uh constantly whenever people ask me what's the biggest challenge at natura it really is education right is how do we get consumers re-educated but we also find it in the farming community where you've you you could you you've got some farmers that are completely into it, right? They're wanting to farm regeneratively, trying to figure out ways to do it. Um, you have people in the middle that are farming in a very, very responsible way and are very conscious and, and very cautious about what they do to the soil. Um, and then you have, you know, people that are farming in a way that is very, let's say, kind of last century or, or the last, as you said, last hundred years. And obviously you work a huge amount with, with farmers, uh, particularly uh, through Integrity Soil. So I'm just really interested to see 
into this idea that you know farming for the benefit of soil is actually beneficial for them and and, and for their bottom line. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's it's very complex, obviously, um, and there's multi prongs to this, you know, because there's so many different ways that people learn, and there's so many different drivers. And what's interesting to me is that the biggest driver is not finances, and it's not data. It's actually that emotional connection. So we work a lot um, in that space of what is it that you really care about? What is it that you want to see for your family, for your children, for, or, or who do you want to be seen to be in the community? And we really work within that space of, of those emotional drivers. Um, and we do it in a way that doesn't make people super uncomfortable. You want to be a little bit uncomfortable because that's where the learning is. Um, but yeah, we, we, there's so many different ways to come at this and it does require different angles. So we work with what we call, you know, opinion leaders. So identifying people within a community that are very well respected, that are just starting to dip their toes in and really um, getting underneath them, helping them um, achieve their successes and then celebrating that in the community is a really powerful tool. Um, I think identifying where we currently are right now um, and thinking, like doing the thinking, like really, is this, are we going to be able to continue to do farming in this way for the long term? Um, we're getting so many people coming to us that are seeing the current system is broken. It's not working. We, we, you know, we have huge debt loadings. We have so much stress. Um, we have putting on so many inputs and just feeling like they're, they're running on a, on a treadmill. And the issue is then is that once you're in that stress, cycle um there's things that happen in the brain so for instance your on average people's iq goes down by about 14 percent when they're under stress so if you're feeling really stressed um it's harder to make decisions it's harder to to change it's there's this real concern around risk so we do stuff looking at um uh what i call the methadone program but don't tell anyone else is we we have a process whereby we're not going to change the system massively. You're not, um, we're not going to change necessarily that maybe the cost structure, but we are going to reduce a lot of these inputs that you, that you don't need. And we're going to put something else in that's going to enable you to kind of, um, start swimming without totally freaking people out, especially when we're dealing with like large scale, um, conventional croppers or, uh, dairy farmers that maybe have huge amounts of inputs, you know, really helping them understand, dig holes, um, get that real tactile, like, you know, your, your soil is so compacted. What do you think is happening with water, you know, and compare um, soils in the field to soils that maybe are on the roadside and go, look, these soils do not even look closely similar. Like there'll be different colors. One will be really compacted um, and, and go, all right, people understand the value of water and you go, well, water's not even going into your property. Your place is so compacted. So I think, um, there's not a single answer to that question, Franco, and I could talk about it for days because it's something that we're really interested in, but it's um, finding what is that different doorway for different people. So, you know, we're seeing legislation and we're seeing governments now getting involved and we're seeing companies now getting involved in the brands and all of that. So there's so many different um, things that are driving change right now. It, it's really exciting. Are you seeing some of these really large scale farmers uh, realizing that as you said, the system is broken, but in, in, a, in a very kind of tangible way where maybe 10 years ago they were farming happily, probably with a lot of debt, but anyways, where they're actually really seeing that the soils are just not, doesn't matter what they're putting on, that, that things aren't working. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, but what I find is, is it, it's people that were really good conventional farmers are really good regenerative farmers. And if you were a pretty average farmer before, you're not going to like get these extraordinary successes now because either you're not taking your actions, you're, you're not observing, you're not doing things in a timely fashion. Um, so we are kind of seeing those outstanding conventional guys are the ones that become really outstanding, um, regenerative as well. And, and they have been observing these things like, we see the soil that gets washed off in a heavy storm. Um, we see the soil that's blowing away in a dust storm. Uh, we see how actually it takes more fuel to now drill or cultivate or whatever they're doing because those soils are so tight that your engine's running higher. And so they're like, you know, we're using 30% more fuel now. Um, and so those people that have really good observation skills, I think um, they are coming on board pretty fast. Yeah. And we're seeing what, I guess, some of that, if I think about the methadone, like some of the gateway drugs like cover crops, you know, anyone can do a cover crop. Um, it's very visual. It looks beautiful. And then you can see those changes that happen if they're digging holes. Hopefully they're looking underground. Um, but it's it's just, I think it's really helped be a great catalyst for creating change. Ultimately, I think that there needs to be some consciousness around as you say, it's 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 perhaps less financial and more uh, consciousness around wanting to do things in a way that is that is better. And uh, this kind of desire to protect, you know, land that's been passed on to you uh, and that you're going to pass on to your kids is uh, is very is very emotional. So hopefully, I, I tend to think that the emotional links are stronger than than the financial ones. They are, and it doesn't mean that finances aren't important or it doesn't mean that finances aren't linked to emotions because you you know you want to not have stress or uh you want to be able to hand something on to the kids or uh, you want to be seen as being you know successful that can all feed into finances so finances can feed some of that emotional component but um certainly what we see is uh people actually getting lifestyle back and and you know that whole work-life balance um I often get emails from people saying, you know, I said to you four years ago that, you know, I wanted to have time to go fishing and spend time with the kids. And, you know, I'm, I'm out here at the reef. We've just been diving. Um, you know, I'm spending more time with the kids I ever have. I feel really relaxed. It's like there was a time before regenerative agriculture and a time after in terms of, um, you know, that well-being stuff, that purpose, you know, why are we really here? We're not just here to fill a, you know, that, you know, we're just earning money. It's like, that's not, why, why we're here. So I think, um, fulfilling on that purpose and really, um, it just feeds into so many aspects of life. It's, it's really, really exciting to work with people when they're going through that transition. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Um, particularly if helping them regain a sense of purpose Yeah, for them and the family, that's, um, kind of that, that's, I forget, I forget the Japanese term for it now. It slips, but you know, ikigai. Yeah, kind of the find ikigai, yeah, yeah, finding what 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 really matters in life and, and doing that. Um, yeah, and I think. Do you think yeah. that? Sorry. Go ahead. Well, I think a lot of um, conventional agriculture takes out that creativity and takes out the fun and um, takes out that um, critical thinking because, you know, here's the input we're going to use, here's the spray we're going to use, and and. People have been trained to stop asking the why questions and to really, really hone those observation skills. And so that that can just be this whole doorway that starts to open when you ask the why, you know. Oh, well, we've always done it. No, you haven't always done it that way because your grandfather wasn't doing it that way, you know. Your grandfather was actually managing sheep totally different than what we do now, you know. And so 
questioning that why do we do it you know there's so much of the structural supports are holding this conventional system in place from you know universities to research centers to legislation or whatever it actually just like this is how we're going to maintain that um you know from banks to accountants they all keep people in that conventional track and so i don't personally think that it's farmers fault with a lot of stuff that's going on from water quality and lack of biodiversity i think it's it's that's what they were that's what they've been supported and trained and encouraged to do so it's it's a big step to step outside that you know and i have a lot of empathy for people that are having that, that are stepping out of this yeah in a way dumbing down farmers unfortunately yeah, as uh, I think it's the same thing that's happened with consumers, right? You you take a lot of the uh, you take a lot of the knowledge, and, and knowledge is is power in a way, and it allows you to, as you say, ask the why questions and the decisions. And um, it reminds me of the you know the the greenhouses where they can be controlled from you know from anywhere, um, and all you do is monitor monitor humidity, temperature, and so forth. And as you say, it kind of it removes a lot of the knowledge around farming, and then 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 you're not in control anymore and it you know the question is do you do you see a way for us to break the industrial cycle in the US over the next i don't know 20 20 30 years do you think that there's enough momentum and doing the right things that that it can actually break or is it or is it so big that i think you're being far too pessimistic franco 20 30 years <laughs> uh, uh what we're seeing here i mean the whole planet's going through a collective shift in consciousness and it's happening really fast and when Paradigms shift, they happen in a moment. You know, it's not um, dragging and dragging and dragging this out. And I think COVID's been absolutely brilliant for making people aware how fragile the food systems are, like what happened here with processing plants, um, what happened on some of the reservations in terms of food banks drying up, um, you know, vulnerable communities unable to source food. And it's like, why aren't we growing more of our own? Why is it that so much is, is sourced from so far away? Um, and so we're seeing a revolution on the ground right now. And I think it's incredibly inspiring and exciting. And I think we all play a small role in that collectively. And I think if we start to feel like, oh God, you know, I have to solve climate change. Um, you're just going to burn yourself out and it's not very productive. So I think I, I'm really interested in what is my realm of influence? You know, where, where is it that I can be working with people in an impactful way and not get distracted by all the noise of the Great Barrier Reef is dying or the whales are becoming extinct or what about the bees? You know, it's like, okay, I'm just going to focus in where I know I'm, I'm really making a difference. And I feel like um, in whatever way we can all achieve that, you know, like not just be the little pebble in the water, but like be the rock that just you know, causes massive ripples. And you don't know what it's going to look like or who you're impacting on, but that um, we're all shifting this upwards. And, you know, I'm in a fairly conservative area, I'd have to say, and um, working with an, an opinion leader who's just doing a fantastic job. Um, we reckon in a 20 mile radius here that over 50% of that land area is now being managed regeneratively. And that's done from people seeing the difference. There's no one trying to convince anybody or no one trying to tell anybody what to do. It's people having an open door and having open conversations and going, whoa, when it rains here, the water doesn't come rushing off your place. You have amazing looking grass. Um, this particular operator, they had um, like a government, not a government, but like a mortgage 
debt broker come and visit them and they have 400 clients and they said to this family, you guys are the only family that we work with that doesn't have off-ranch income because they can make it work on their piece of land. And people see that um, and it's it doesn't look very hard. you know. So I, I kind of feel like this change is happening um, really fast. And one of the change agents that I'm seeing really driving stuff is the brands. So seeing companies say, hey, we, we want regenerative products. Can you supply that? Um, and they're closer to the consumer than a, than a rancher or a farmer is. Like there's a whole couple of degrees of separation from who's using your product. So not necessarily aware, oh, actually people are demanding this and I'm not supplying it. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like this is changing really fast. And in fact, if we don't, many of these areas that are currently on the edge will not be farming in 10, 20 years because of what's happening in terms of um, climactic variability. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of that uh, across the farms we work with in, in all sorts of different regions. Uh, there's unquestionably, and particularly over the years, there's more and more um, talk and concern around uh, the change in the climate. And this goes from all the way, you know, in Sicily, all the way uh, up to kind of the north of England uh, and and here in the here in the U.S. as well. It's a very, very common, common topic, unfortunately. Yeah. And here it's been politicized, unfortunately. So climate change equals you're not going to let us mine and drill for oil. And it's like, God, do we really? Um, and so it, it's uh, it's a, an emotional topic. There's people out here that don't believe in climate change. So that's fine. Don't let that be. A, um, that doesn't have to be a driver. But things like the fact that your soil is water repellent and that you only got three inches of rainfall last year. We need to be thinking. Uh, how do we start to build resilience into this? Whether or not you think it's human-induced climate change, like you don't have to believe it's human-induced, but we have to be taking actions differently. You're listening to Transform the Food System with me, Franco Fabini, and today I'm talking to Nicole Masters about soil health. I wanted to talk about climate change. I wanted to ask you something around around carbon, but before that, I I thought it would be interesting for people to hear in, I guess, as layman terms as possible what happens underneath between plants and all of the biology there, particularly the fungal networks mm-hmm. and this, uh, this reliance and this beautiful uh, relationship that there is underground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And none of these organisms stand in isolation, but if you're thinking of, you know, how does this whole system work? If we don't have green living plants or microbiology, or we would have like the planet earth would look like Mars, you know, it would just be sand, silt and clay. And really it's this interface between plants and their microbiological partners that is what builds soil and humus and that lovely crumbly dark organic matter material is all from from this interface, right? So basically plants are capturing sunlight energy and a big part of what they drive or they create are that sunlight energy are carbohydrates, so carbon, hydrogen and oxygen. And then that becomes the, the basis for everything that that plant then produces. So turning that into proteins or lipids or cellulose or the flavor profiles that we were talking about all starts with this um, photosynthetic capture. They then pump probably 30 to 40%, depending on the plant, um, out their roots to feed their microbiology. So with with their stomach being outside of their body, what they're stimulating is bacteria and fungi and protozoa and nematodes that are doing the nutrient cycling 
So your bacteria and your fungi will actually etch away onto rocks and solubilize using different acids. So the same as in our gut, you know, in our stomach, we have all these acids that will help to break that food down. And then you have all the bacteria that keep on working on that and the fungi that, um, so some of them like mycorrhizae are inside the actual plant root. They're stretching out into that soil environment much, much further than what plant roots can do. And the plant is communicating the whole time, like saying, hey, right now I need zinc or right now I'm under attack. Can you provide um, the enzyme or the um, proteinase or whatever it is that I need in order to defend myself? So the plant doesn't do it by itself. It's all in relationship and all in communication. And those communication signals are incredibly complex. So you think on the outside of every single cell, like a bacteria, there's 100,000 receptors waiting for some kind of chemical signaling or electrical signaling to respond. So it might be, hey, you need to turn off, you need to go to sleep, you need to wake up, or someone's about to eat you, you better run, um, because they don't have any eyes, right? So it's this darkened landscape down there. So there's this constant chatter and like people are like, oh, we should love soil. And I'm like, you know what? Soil is a horror movie. There are creatures down there that are like vampires. There's some that will take over your body and turn you into a zombie. Um, there's just like, if you could hear it, it would sound like screams, you know, like there's just all of this activity and things being eaten. And then those metabolites or those in, the insides of those organisms are then released to plants as food. So you want all of that diversity and all of that activity because that in turn is what creates a, a healthy plant. And then that's what's building carbon, building water holding capacity, um, building the health of the system. So yeah, it's, it's alive just in a snapshot. <laughs> as a, as a society or as a planet, we've kind of the connection that we had with, with, with nature and with land has been very much lost. We kind of, I think we expect again, something that, that you mentioned this kind of expectation that you have this food system that is just providing you with all of this immediacy of food. And there's this expectation that that's normal when Perhaps it shouldn't be, and it's come at a, at a tremendous at a tremendous cost. And um, yeah, I guess the you know what you've just described is is a way for us to reconnect a lot with nature in terms of starting to real re understand these these wider connections of this wider world around us. Yeah, and also I think it's a it's a fallacy for us to think that we're separate from nature. We are nature, yeah. and so actually what we're doing is we're separating ourselves from a part of ourselves, and. What comes out of that is unhappiness, is is illness. Um, yeah, it's just debilitating. And, you know, watching all the RVs coming through Montana with COVID, it's like people are like, I got to get out of the city. I got to be with nature, you know, I got to go for a hike, you know. And and I think it's that for me, that's a really, it's, it's positive. And then, okay, we're not just going to buy a second and third house out in the countryside. It's, it's like, how do we really connect in, um, yeah, thinking about our, our food or their relationships with things around us and what, what actually is important. Um, yeah. Yeah. But you're right. We're very much, uh, I, I see it the same way. We, we are part of nature and we forget that. And, uh, going on to, onto carbon, obviously there's a lot of different views on this, but what is your, from, from the work that you've done over the last 20, 20 plus years, I guess, what is your instinctive or, or perhaps even scientific um, view on how much farming regeneratively can really impact climate change on, on its own? Yeah, and it's a good question. And I think I probably got more jaded as I get older about the whole darn carbon thing. And I'm just happy people are talking about carbon, but it's just a, it's just a one component of 
healthy ecosystem functioning. And, you know, if we look at how industrial agriculture is actually impacting on one, the small water cycle, um, but also just on, we've, we've basically been geoengineering through our, our management. And at least in the UK, you can think, well, people have woodrows or they have, you know, there's more of that well, I guess a lot of that's been pulled out, but, you know, there's more of these coppicing blocks, there's more vegetation cover. But I, I don't know about the UK, but I know flying over New Zealand in spring is terrifying because, you know, at least 30% of that ground is sprayed out with glyphosate. So you've just got these orange fields. That has an impact on, on, on the climate, right? Because we no longer have plants that are transpiring and releasing water, which is actually your biggest climate change. Um, driver is is the water cycle, right? So we need to be thinking about how is water functioning, and so we have desertification happening at, at just a tremendous rate right across the planet, um, and it's due to factors like overgrazing and, and mismanagement, um, things like cultivation or chemical fallow, and then the the practice of chemical fallow, so spraying things out with glyphosate, actually changes the atmospheric boundary. So what it does is it pushes clouds up and away, and it reduces um, rainfall. So they've tracked that here in Montana and Saskatchewan to show that a lot of those kind of chemical practices were disrupting um, local climate factors. And so if we're disrupting what's just happening in our own space, that has an impact on what's happening globally. So, um, you know, fossil fuels are obviously a massive driver and we need to do something about that. But we've lost something like 200 gigatons of carbon out of soil and, you know, up in the atmosphere, you know, that's going to, increase heating but it's not a pollutant and I think people are missing this boat I think thinking like it's something bad it's not something bad it's just in the wrong place and so you know getting in behind farmers and really thinking about you know how do we draw this down but the trick with it it moves a little bit like water you know it's not like here's a rock and we can come back and we can measure as our rock got bigger the next year because it, it moves fluidly through a landscape so we need to be thinking in whole landscape functions not just carbon we need to because Wherever we're drawing in carbon, then we're also improving water cycles and we're improving our nitrogen cycle. So we can track those things together because it's it's all intertwined. So I think the singular um, focus on any one element for me is always dangerous because there's side effects, there's unintended consequences of not thinking in systems. Um, and so the more that people can do that, like, let's think about methane from cows. Where did it come from? Oh, they ate a plant that had some carbon in it. And they went into their fermentation system in their in their body, and then those bacteria helped to release that as methane, which is CH4, right? Which is biological foods. Then that cow breathes that out. Then what happens? Well, actually, if you've got green growing grass, there's what they call the um, hydroxyl radicals, right? And that is what a plant's breathing out as it transpires. Well, that reacts with that methane and turns it back into carbon and water. No net loss, right? There's no there's no like cows are making something. So by having this science that just focuses in on like everything in a silo, um, we create more problems in our mind. And then we're, we're, then we're reacting to that by like, oh, well, we need to like make a vaccine that's going to stop those cows making methane. You know, it's like sometimes humans, I think our whole mentality, it, it's, it's a farcical to me. It's like, okay, no, we, you just made that up. That whole thing was made up that we have a problem. So I think the more that we can think about um, where our food came from, what are those food miles maybe involved in that? Um, how do we restore and regenerate landscapes? Um, and what, what did it look like? What, you know, what does nature really want this space to, to, 
to look like. And I guess it's hard in the UK with such a long history of of humans, but at least here in, in the US, you can go, well, actually, these used to have grasslands that were, you know, you could tie over the back of your horse, and now you've got one blade of grass here and one blade of grass there. All right, how do we how do we restore those systems because that is having um, a global effect? Sorry, I went down the rabbit hole. <laughs> no, no, no. It's uh, it's very interesting. I think that you know the yeah the idea of yeah looking at things through the lens of an ecosystem or or wider yeah it's not just. It's just not one one thing. Things have consequences. Same thing for us as well, right? You 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 need to look at everything that you're doing as an individual to see to make sure that you're you know healthy and and, and stay well. Um, I wonder whether maybe sometimes it's trying to humans trying to I don't know see what clicks with or what governments feel is the necessary the necessary direction that they need to be communicating for whatever. For whatever reason, and 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 likewise, uh, whether people just fixate on fixate on on one issue because it feels convenient, um, I probably it's a lack of lack of knowledge again, right? It's as as we as we learn more about soils and as we learn more about how these systems really work. We're just not trained to think in systems, and I think this needs to happen from the beginning. You know, really thinking about long term consequences instead. I mean, it's even like how we parent. Or how businesses work in terms of using carrots and sticks as as behavior change, and it's like those two things actually don't change. They change things, but they don't transform anything. They don't actually really shift how you think about something. You're just going to avoid it because you're afraid or you feel guilty or whatever. We need to be really thinking in terms of what will create a transformation here. We don't need new, different, shiny space rockets or whatever. We need to be really thinking deeply about how do we how does this transform and then there's no going back to I'm going to now um, cultivate my land or or whatever and so governments do not have the capacity to to really work in transformation they only have the capacity to work in carrots and sticks and that seems to be where most of them are focusing right legislation or reward Mm. that is the norm yeah yeah, I like that uh, that comment about transformation in your book. And, uh, and how would you apply that? I guess it's a nice way to nice way to finish, which is, you know, the consumer and how do we how do we get them to really understand the importance of you know nutrition and foods mm-hmm. and nutritional density? And I, I've got um, one one of the hopes that I have is that at some point in the near future, not 20, 30 years in, in the next yeah. in the next year or two on this one, that um, that we can start communicating with our customers in terms of nutritional value of food rather than uh, economic value of food. Because right? yeah. a lot of people come to us and say, well, you know, why are your tomatoes 30 percent more expensive than what I can get at the supermarket? Mm-hmm. Um and there's a lot of good stories why they're more expensive, but I think what would be fascinating is to be able to tell them and say, listen, they're 30% more expensive in terms of weight, but if you look at nutritional density, there might be 30% cheaper. Yeah. Um, so I guess the question is, how do you think we can get to that or that level of transformation, right, in, in consumers? Um, I don't know if you if you have a view or not, or if you have an idea, but I think it's... uh... Well, what's interesting is we're seeing the development of these handheld spectrometers so that people can actually measure nutrient density for themselves, um, you know, and actually be able to ask the question like, how much fungicides and pesticides are on this food? And that's going to be a game changer because you can 
zap on that and that piece of fruit is a dollar but it's full of fungicide and pesticide and this one's full of two dollars but it's full of nutrients and it's clean you're not going to care about that dollar like i think it's going to very quickly um, be able to drive change which i think would be really neat i mean what i'd love to see is instead of organic certification uh, like how much, how many chemicals were applied, how many fungicides and pesticides were applied. Like if we had to start actually showing people what went on behind the scenes, um, people can change what they're growing, what they're buying really, really fast. Um, I've yeah. seen some interesting stuff coming out of which, talking with sorry people. Sorry about that. Yeah. Which, which uh, goes hand in hand with this, uh, the concept of organic, right? And and the fact that so many consumers are completely unaware of industrial organic and and yeah. Yeah. And it's what, I mean, I started my career in organics and went, this isn't, this is change, not transformation. We're just seeing a different chemical and it's organic. Um, but yeah, I work a, a lot with different, I've got friends that live on reservations and, and work with some of those agencies and seeing how hard hit they've been by COVID, not to bring it back to COVID all the time, but ugh, it's everywhere. Um, and <laughs> what they've seen is like the massive impact and, um, you know, loss you know, deaths and sickness and that wake up call that what are we eating? We're not even eating traditional foods. There's a whole lot of sugar and white bread and alcohol and all of this stuff that means that that community has no resilience. And I think um, for me, so much of this comes down to nutrition um, and, and well-being. And so I think people are starting to think about food differently. And I I, and that's my hope is that we, people are thinking about food and it's changing pretty quickly. And, you know, we're seeing pop-ups here, even like Montana, just all of these um, health stores and organic food stores, people are, are demanding that, but they need to know about it. So I think it's on our shoulders, uh, you know, and, and producers shoulders to, to get together collaboratively and start communicating um, what, what the benefits are, what their land looks like. Here's industrial agriculture. Don't buy that Impossible Burger, all right? It's not the same as, you know, regenerative grass-fed beef. Yeah, completely. I think the, I'm, I'm convinced that demand is the key, right? And, and, and consumers, consumers hold, hold, hold the key there. Yeah. If we, can, if we can get them to stimulate the right kind of demand and mass, then I think that's the... That is the way to, to overturn the system. If the, there's one one really reassuring thing that I that I hear all the time, uh, and th this happens even in Europe, where um, you know farming there is is in a different place than it is in the U.S. I think particularly because of the cultural um, the, the kind of cultural connection that there is to food and the depth uh, with which it's it's connected. But even farmers there have told me that um, they used to farm varieties that were better. Um, or tastier, more nutritious, uh, but the market mm -hmm. veered them in a different direction, and that they would happily, you know, they would happily be, be planting a different variety that was tastier. So you realize that even farmers, as you, as you, you said earlier in, in our conversation, in some ways they become victims of the system, whereby you know they're, they're, what what they're planting to me is a direct correlation of what's being asked of them. You know, and the land is there. And if we farm it correctly and we plant the right kind of varieties that are nutritionally dense and delicious and, uh, and not there for yield, um, and long transportation, um, the system can overturn itself, but, uh, but the key is, is the consumer. Yeah. And they're going to know what's going on. It's a pretty exciting place to be in right now and lots of just incredible movement. Yeah. So yeah. Yay. Yay. Thanks Franco. I really enjoyed the conversation and thanks for inviting me. A real pleasure. Thank you so much, Nicole. No worries.
You've been listening to Transform the Food System with Franco Fubini, an Atura podcast. The easiest way to join the food system revolution right now is to share, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. By helping us get the word out, you're adding to the community of voices demanding radical change. Join us for the next episode in two weeks with Alice Waters, where we discuss her life as a chef, restaurateur, and activist. 